Hello, everyone, and welcome to the January 31st edition of the WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Foles, an attorney with the Floyd Scarron Law Firm. Thanks for joining us today. So let's get started with our litigation report. Alec Baldwin's attorneys argued in a demur filed last week that the workers' compensation exclusive remedy protects him from a lawsuit stemming from the Rust movie shooting last October. Film crew members were rehearsing Mr. Baldwin's drawing and pointing a prop six-shooter-style revolver firearm, or prop gun, for a cowboy standoff scene. Baldwin's demur comes in response to a civil suit filed in Los Angeles Superior Court by Mamie Mitchell, the film's script supervisor, against Baldwin and other producers and crew members. Mamie Mitchell is represented by Gloria Alred. The Rust production had a liability policy with Chubb, with a $6 million policy limit. Mitchell was standing just a few feet away from Baldwin when he fired the gun and was the first person to call 911. She alleges that she suffered pain and ringing in her ears as well as emotional injuries. Apparently, her lawyers pled the case as an assault by Mr. Baldwin, hoping to construe Baldwin's behavior as an intentional tort, which may be actionable despite the workers' compensation exclusive remedy rule. However, the defendants challenged her claim that it was an intentional tort and that she has any legal right to any monetary recovery in a civil action. They say the law is clear that she is not. The civil case will be decided by the New Mexico Supreme Court case Delgado v. Phelps Dodge. The Delgado case overruled the actual intent test of the exclusive remedy rule and created an exception to the provisions of the New Mexico Workers' Compensation Act, where the shooting took place. The new standard to circumvent the exclusive remedy in that state after the Delgado case is something less than intentional, but more than negligence. The Delgado case was thought to have set a stage for a deluge of tort claims from injured employees who previously would have been precluded as a matter of law in that state from recovering damages outside of the act. However, examination of Delgado and its New Mexico progeny indicate that while Delgado changed the law, legal scholars at the University of New Mexico say its application is so narrow as to have minimal impact on the exclusive remedy protection. And that subsequent interpretations of the Delgado exception in New Mexico have defined very narrow boundaries and severely limit the scope of its coverage. Mitchell's suit alleges that Baldwin should have double-checked the gun and also accuses the producers of cutting corners, leading to unsafe conditions. But in the demur, Baldwin's attorneys argue that Mitchell cannot point to any intentional act that led to the shooting. Another co-worker, Serge Svatnoy, the gaffer, who was also nearby when the shot was fired, filed a separate suit on November 10th. The producers have yet to respond to that lawsuit. 
The Mitchell demur will be heard on February 24th and will know what law the Superior Court will apply. Insurance Commissioner Ricardo Lara has been under fire since 2019 when news media reported questionable campaign contributions from associates of Applied Underwriters while Applied was under investigation by the California Department of Insurance and at the same time seeking approval of the sale of the company. At that time, Laura reported accepting more than $50,000 in donations from insurance company executives and their apparent spouses. At that time, Laura reported $31,000 in contributions from Stephen Acunto, who also served as a spokesman for Applied Underwriters. The donations from Acuntos to Laura came on April 30, 2019, one month before Applied Underwriters alerted the California Department of Insurance that the company was in the process of being sold. Although most news media discontinued following this story after it broke in 2019, Consumer Watchdog pursued the investigation with Freedom of Information Act requests. The requests were followed up by a Public Records Act lawsuit filed in early 2020. Consumer Watchdog is a nonprofit public interest organization. And the FOIA enforcement lawsuit just provided evidence that Laura and his top lieutenant, Brian Henley, had undisclosed communications with two former lawmakers representing the workers' compensation insurer at the heart of the pay-to-play scandal. These communications occurred while a high-profile merger and other regulatory matters involving the insurer were pending before the California Department of Insurance. A new declaration from former legislature legislator-turned-lobbyist Rusty Arias confirms that Commissioner Lara and Special Counsel Bryant Henley were indeed in contact with Mr. Arias and former Assembly Speaker Fabian Nunes, Laura's friend and political mentor. The declaration states that Arias and Nunes identified themselves as representing applied underwriters. The communications occurred around the time Henley intervened in at least four proceedings on Commissioner Lara's behalf to benefit applied underwriters. When the scandal became public in mid-2019, Lara returned the com- campaign contributions. Despite Commissioner Lara's pledge of transparency, Consumer Watchdog says the Department of Insurance failed to search for, let alone produce, records of meetings and communications with individuals representing the workers' compensation insurer, including Nunes and Arias. According to Mr. Arias's declaration, submitted under penalty of perjury, Nunes and Arias began communicating with Commissioner Lara and Brian Henley as early as February 2019. Yet, not a single record of meetings or phone calls between Nunes and Arias and Lara and Henley or other department staff has been disclosed in the FOIA request. No phone records, no calendar entries, no emails, and no text messages. Nunes and Arias have emerged as central figures in the scandal following a lawsuit filed by Fabian Nunes's former lobbying firm to collect a $2 million success fee 
from applied underwriters related to the sale of the company. The payment was to be made in exchange for Nunes and Arias's successful efforts to protect a $60 million deposit that would have been lost had the sale of Applied Underwriters' company not been finalized. The declaration of Mr. Arias was filed in Los Angeles Superior Court with a motion seeking to compel the department to produce 200 internal communications regarding the Consumer Watchdog's public records requests. Consumer Watchdog expects that these communications likely reflect the department's decision to withhold key information from the public. This motion is scheduled to be heard on April 27th. And now our crime report. 54-year-old Wee Wen Wu and 49-year-old Fang Wen Lam, who both live in Arcadia, are charged with 43 felony counts of insurance fraud, grand theft, and conspiracy after allegedly underreporting nearly $4.5 million in employee payroll. The scheme fraudulently reduced their company's workers' compensation insurance premium, resulting in a loss of about $1.7 million in unpaid insurance premiums. A parallel investigation by the California Department of Industrial Relations also uncovered significant wage theft from employees at the couple's chicken processing business in El Monte. Lamb is the owner of Golden Food Incorporated. That's a chicken processing business employing butchers and meat packers in El Monte. State Compensation Insurance Fund requested an investigation when it suspected fraud after comparing the payroll reported during annual audits with the payroll reported to the Employment Development Department. Using a search warrant, the Department of Insurance was able to obtain the true payroll records from the company's computer and found fake tax reporting forms. The investigation revealed a loss of nearly $1.7 million in unpaid insurance premiums to four insurance companies, including the state fund. The DIR investigation found employees were forced to clock out for breaks and continue to work, and they were not paid overtime for work in excess of 40 weekly hours, and that their pay stubs were falsified. An audit found that Lamb and Wu failed to pay a minimum of $437,000 in labor to their 34 employees based on the minimum legal market value. The Employment Development Department announced earlier this month that they had halted payments on 345,000 disability claims associated with 27,000 suspicious doctors. According to its latest press release, EDD continues to confirm that most of the suspect disability insurance medical provider accounts it flagged as suspicious were fraud attempts. The few providers that were not fraud but instead victims of identity theft are completing verification along with their patients, and EDD will then resume certifying the claims. To date, EDD has confirmed that about 98% of the 27,000 medical provider accounts it initially flagged as suspicious were likely fraudulent. Specifically, 485 of those providers have verified their identity at this point 
and the rest of the 27,000 did not. Claimants received notices this week to verif verify their identity with ID.me as quickly as possible to help in resuming payments. Other claimants have received different notices with other verification requirements specific to their claim. The EDD verse sought the information last November, but most of the 1.4 million people asked last year to prove they properly received federally funded unemployment benefits have not responded to the state's request and could eventually face penalties and repayments. The EDD said it would add a 30% penalty if it determined the claimant intentionally gave false information or withheld information to receive benefits. So far, about 280,000 people out of the 1.4 million have responded. Of those, about 90% were found eligible for the benefits. The others are being given time to appeal and submit further documentation. Judy Hine of Rhinelander, Wisconsin, pled guilty to two counts of felony workers' compensation fraud here in California. Hine was a co-owner of Cal Roofing Incorporated, located in Simi Valley. During that time, Hine underreported the true amount of company payroll by over $3 million to her workers' compensation insurance company, the State Fund. Hines fraud caused State Fund to lose $1.6 million in premium payments. At the time of her guilty plea, Hine paid $600,000 in partial restitution to the State Fund. Hine is scheduled to be sentenced on February 23rd. And fake COVID test sites may very well complicate the adjudication of COVID compensation claims. The presumptions for compensability of a COVID-related workers' compensation claim is predicated on a positive test for the presence of the virus here in California. However, according to the California Attorney General, there are now fake testing sites surfacing in California. Attorney General Bonta said fake testing sites are sprouting up to exploit families and individuals seeking COVID tests and that it is important to recognize the signs of these sham testing sites. It would seem prudent that the investigation of workers' compensation claims should now dig deeper to ensure that the test result offered by the claimant was not from one of the fake sites and indeed is an authentic test result. After receiving payment for a COVID-19 test, these fake testing sites oftentimes fail to provide their patients with their test results. These sites may also ask for patients' personal identifiable information with the intention of committing identity fraud. The alert shared tips on how to avoid testing site scams, as well as how to search and locate legitimate verified testing sites. To find a testing site that is verified to perform COVID-19 testing, Use the California Department of Public Health's test site search tool. Someone may also search for local testing sites through a county's local public health department. Should someone choose to use an unaffiliated testing site, be wary of the following. If a provider insists on documenting nationality or in immigration status. 
if a provider does not offer a notice of privacy practices or cannot explain how it will use and share personal data or if a provider insists on accessing a passport or driver's license when they have other documents that show insurance status. Beware of fake websites that purposely look identical to those belonging to well-known trusted organizations and state agencies. Also be cautious of unsolicited calls regarding testing sites. A legitimate company or health clinic will not call, text, or email anyone without their permission. If someone receives an unsolicited message from an individual, they should not provide the caller or sender with any personal information until having confirmed it is coming from a legitimate source. Any of these red flags or tips would be good questions to ask a claimant for purposes of establishing the validity of any COVID test result. And in regulatory news, the Division of Workers' Compensation has issued a notice of public hearing to amend the copy service fee schedule. The Zoom public hearing is scheduled for Friday, February 25th at 10 a.m., as a follow-up to a previous public hearing that was held last, last August. The proposed updates to the regulations include an increase of the flat rate for copy services from $180 to $230 for records up to 500 pages, and this includes all associated services such as pagination, witness fees for delivery of records, and subpoena preparation. This is a slight increase from the first proposal of $225 last August. There is a new provision that says that claims administrators are not liable for payment for duplicative records sent to the independent medical review organization. Members of the public may review and comment on the proposal until February 25th. Participants can join from a PC, Mac, or Linux iOS, or Android using a Zoom link provided on the DWC website. The U.S. Occupational Health and Safety Administration announced it's ending the COVID-19 vaccination and testing rules that were struck down by the U.S. Supreme Court. But it vowed to continue efforts to make the rules permanent in the future. The agency said it is prioritizing its resources to focus on finalizing a permanent COVID-19 health care standard, and that OSHA strongly encourages vaccination of workers against the continuing dangers posed by COVID-19 in the workplace. One of the plaintiffs in the SCOTUS case, First Liberty Institute, its president and CEO and chief counsel responded to the OSHA announcement by saying, the Supreme Court made it clear that the President Biden's administration attempt to federalize the nation's workforce is blatantly unconstitutional. He said that OSHA had no choice but to withdraw its unlawful ETS, Emergency Temporary Standard, and added that his organization will continue to fight on behalf of its clients and the American people. RAND Corporation recently released a new perspectives report about access to workers' compensation benefits for employees who are required to work outside their homes during the COVID-19 pandemic. 
They briefly assessed the potential impacts of continuing to expand such access on workers and insurers. And finally, they posed further questions that policymakers and others may want to consider when evaluating past policies and crafting new ones to meet future public health emergencies. Although many businesses have transitioned employees from on-site work to telework, frontline employees in certain sectors deemed essential, such as hospitals and other healthcare facilities, public safety agencies such as police and fire departments, critical infrastructure such as electric and water utilities, or the food supply chain must continue to work on-site. Depending on the specific public health restrictions in place, many non-essential businesses have also operated in a manner that requires employees to work on-site and, in some instances, to have extensive contact with customers, vendors, and suppliers. As of last summer, 36 states, the District of Columbia, and Puerto Rico have either implemented or are considering changes to make it easier for some classes of workers who contract COVID-19 while working outside their home to obtain workers' comp benefits. In the majority of states that have expanded workers' compensation presumptions, the presumption takes effect on either a positive COVID-19 test result or a physician's diagnosis. In Mississippi, North Dakota, and Washington, the presumption takes effect once a worker is ordered to quarantine by an employer because of suspected COVID-19 exposure. In a majority of states, workers' compensation actuaries have adopted regulations excluding COVID-19 from experience rating. The National Council on Compensation Insurance proposed a rule change omitting COVID-19 claims from experience rating calculations. And to date, 34 of the 36 states it regulates, excepting Alaska and Nebraska, with the NCCI, have approved the rule change. Additionally, all states not covered by NCCI have approved similar rule changes. The COVID-19 pandemic has so far not had dramatic impacts on the profitability of the workers' compensation insurance market. Many employees who have contracted COVID-19 have recovered relatively quickly without the need for long-term costly medical care or time off from work. This was far from the dire predictions at the start of the pandemic. And although numerous laws and regulations have been enacted across many states, many of the COVID-19 claims have not ultimately met the requirements for compensability. Also, some observers have noted that overall claims frequency in 2020 declined in many states. A study by the Workers' Compensation Research Institute found that in the second quarter of 2020, the volume of non-COVID-19 workers' compensation claims dropped by at least 30% in the vast majority of states. The biggest risk that insurers now face is the unknown long-term health implications for people who have recovered from a serious COVID-19 infection. Patients admitted to the intensive care units are generally at greater risk of long-term adverse health outcomes. Some experts also anticipate that an influx of post-traumatic stress and mental health claims could also be on the way. It will take decades to fully understand what, if any, serious long-term side effects 
patients who have recovered from COVID-19 will face. Insurers face uncertain risk around tail costs, which include the potential for latent claims filed for lifetime medical, permanent disability, or death benefits. The RAND researchers concluded by saying that the effects of the COVID-19 pandemic on the U.S. business and labor market will last far beyond an official declaration that the pandemic has ended. And in medical news, a new stealth Omicron variant, BA2, has been found in at least 40 countries. Labs in countries including Denmark and Norway have reported that the subvariant has been gaining ground accounting for nearly half of all COVID cases as of January 20th, marking a sharp increase in recent weeks. In a press release issued last Friday, the UK's Health Security Agency, SHSA, said that the Omicron variant sublineage, known as BA2, has been designated a variant under investigation by the agency. The agency went on to report that in total, 40 countries have uploaded 8,040 BA.2 sequences to a medical database since the 17th of November 2021. At this point, it is not possible to determine where the sublineage may have originated. The first sequences were submitted from the Philippines, and most samples have been uploaded from Denmark, 6,411 samples, and other countries that have uploaded more than 100 samples are India, 530, Sweden, 181, and Singapore, 127. The COVID-19 incident director at UK Agency said, it is the nature of viruses to evolve and mutate. So it's to be expected that we will continue to see new variants emerge as the pandemic goes on. Continued genomic surveillance allows the agency to detect them and assess whether they are significant. And a press release last week from Denmark's Statens Serum Institute Infectious Disease Research Institution stated that the subvariant BA2 accounted for 20% of all COVID vaccines in Denmark in December. One notable aspect of BA2 is that it lacks a genetic characteristic that scientists have used to identify Omicron cases previously, giving credence to its stealth Omicron moniker. However, a computational biologist at the University of Basel in Switzerland posted to Twitter that BA2 is still detectable on a PCR test and branded news reports to the contrary is totally wrong. Depending on the PCR test used, it may not look like BA1, the other Omicron, but the test will still give a positive result. So that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcast and special report using your iPhone, iPad, or Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. And we also publish our daily news, our podcast, and other utilities on our free WorkCompApps.com smartphone app. Again, I'm Renee Foltz with Floyd Scarian, Manukian Langevin. Thanks for joining us today. 
And please drop by again next week for more news.